One of my biggest fears in life is really two things. Looking stupid or looking weak. Carla's laughing because she thinks that probably at least one of them, right? <laughs> but if you wind the clock back about five years, that's exactly how I felt. Stupid and weak. I was running with all my strength through kind of waist-height water in just my underwear. I was on a bush track, um, tracing, chasing after this four-wheel drive that had just driven past, screaming out, yelling, help, help, but he didn't hear me. And so I'm running through this water, trying to get there, trying, and finally I get to the back of this massive four-wheel drive, bang on the back, the guy stops, he's like driving through water really deep. I'm like, our car's stuck. I tried to drive through this puddle, and it washed over the windscreen, and it's, the engine kind of stopped, and I can't do anything. Here I was, uh, Sarah was in the car, Nathaniel was 10 weeks old, um, water was up to the middle of the back seat inside the car, and we were pretty much stuck. I thought I could get through it. I, I looked weak, gasping for breath, just wearing my underwear, asking this kind of bogan Aussie in his big four-wheel drive, can you come and help? He's like, get in the back, you know. I jump in the back, he drives back to where the car was. In the end, he doesn't help me, he just drives off and goes, oh, I'm going to go find someone to help, and never came back. <laughs> I rang our insurance company after I ran another sort of amount of time to, to get to somewhere where I could get reception. Um, they said they were sending someone. We were there for three or four, maybe five hours, waiting. Finally, this massive four-wheel drive came, it looked like a monster truck. And um, this guy was towing people out and um, towed us out and the car was written off. Um, we'd insured it five days earlier, which we're thankful to God for. Um, so, never in my life have I felt so stupid and so weak. Seems to me that almost every normal human being has this inherent desire to not look like a fool. Or to look, or we don't want to appear weak to anyone, right? But here's the thing, just about everything about Christianity looks foolish and weak, doesn't it? The message is foolish and weak. Those who believe it look tiny and small, and those who preach it or even just speak about it look foolish and weak to the world around us. Why would anyone want to be part of something so foolish or weak? Why would anyone want to be a Christian? Well, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth comes in this context of a foolish and weak Christianity. The church, remember, was a gifted church. They were blessed in every way. They had every spiritual gift, enriched in all speech and all knowledge. But they were a church that was addicted to power and pleasure. A church that loved smooth talkers and fast speakers. They loved the shiny bling. Like us, Foolishness and weakness was something they wanted to avoid like the plague. And so they beefed up their people. They beefed up their freedoms. They, they presented their freedoms to the world saying, look how advanced and modern we are. And so Paul writes to them and to us of the reality of the message we believe. He fixes our eyes on what's actually going on. Verse 18, have a look in your Bibles. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This one message, 
The message of Christianity, the message of Jesus' death in our place, his resurrection to be the judge of the earth, that message divides the world. To one group, it's the most wonderful news that they've ever heard. It's their life, it's their hope, it's their future. But to the other group, it's foolishness, it's stupidity. You think a man that was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago was the creator of the universe? (laughs) You'd have to be a fool to believe that, wouldn't you? Well, here's a fact, friends. The gospel, the message of Christianity, has always been viewed as foolish. The moment in Mark 8, when Jesus told Peter, one of his closest three friends, that he had come to die and rise again, Peter, if you remember, Peter had just told Jesus that he was the Christ, God's promised king. This is, what, this, is what, um, this is what Jesus says. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside to rebuke him. The man who's just called Jesus the king of the universe says, no, 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 you can't die. That's foolish. The message of the gospel has always been foolish. In 1857, um, some archaeologists found this little piece of graffiti dated somewhere around 100 to 200 years after Jesus' death. It's a picture of a guy. This is the actual graffiti on this side, and that's kind of a, oh, look at this. And that's the kind of the tracing of it. The words say, Alexemenos sebete etheon, which in Greek means Alexander worships his God. And that's fine. He's kind of Raising his hand to a man on a cross, but he's wearing a donkey's head. This is kind of graffiti saying, what a ridiculous God that this guy worships. He's a donkey. He's a jackass, right? Who in their right mind would worship someone crucified on a cross? Thanks, take that down there. To the Muslims, it's impossible that the Son of God would die. The very idea of it is ridiculous. It's impossible that someone could bear another person's burden. To Islam, that just, just can't happen. Five times throughout the Quran, it kind of says, no one can bear the burden of another. Christianity has never been cool. It's never been hit. It's never been like, yeah, this is, this is great. That's why God keeps telling us, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Because to the eyes of everyone else, it's a foolish story. It's a weak story, and it's shameful to believe it, isn't it? We've got to resist the urge of the Corinthians, the urge to pursue a style of Christianity that panders to our culture, that waters down the biblical truth to make it more palatable. We've got to, we've got to not do that. Here, we need to all the time proclaim the truth of the gospel. But the culture around us, even some of the churches around us, What I hear is, there's no such thing as hell. Hell doesn't exist. A loving God wouldn't send people to hell, therefore God is loving, wouldn't send people to hell, therefore God can't do it. Hell can't exist. Or we don't talk about sin. We talk more about the love of God. We don't want to make people feel guilty. That's kind of not popular. But on the positive side, come to Jesus and your life will be beer and Skittles. How many times have you heard that? I don't know if it's a Kiwi saying. It means everything's great. Your life will be brilliant. 
If you, if you just come to Jesus, your life will be L&P and fluffy marshmallow chocolate fish things. <laughs> like, that's what life will be. It'll be awesome. You know, they don't talk about the trials and the hardship. At times when these things happen, you're like, oh, it's because you haven't got enough faith or you, 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 you're, rebelling, you're rebelling against God. And I think we're tempted to do it ourselves. I know I am. How many times do you find yourself holding back mentioning something about church or Jesus? How many times do you find yourself in a conversation with your lips shut, standing silent when it comes up? How many times do you let your fear of appearing foolish seal your lips? Now, I'm not saying this to guilt us. That's not, not my aim. I'm saying it to me as much as I am to you. But the only way people will hear about Jesus is if you and I open our mouths. It's not just on me. It's not just on you. It's on all of us. The only way that this church will grow is if we speak of the God who loved us and made us. His incredible love shown for us in Jesus' death in our place on a cross. The only way you can truly love your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends, and I mean truly love them, right, is if you open your mouth about Jesus. There's a course called uh, Christianity Explored. It's run by a guy called Rico Tice. Rico was a rugby player in the UK, quite quite a good rugby player, toured around the UK. He was touring with a mate, um, been touring together, they they kind of bunked together in all the tours, a number of years. Rico was also a solid Christian um, and keen to tell people about Jesus and had a number of tapes that he, that he kind of produced so people could, could hear about who Jesus was and what he'd done. Anyway, one of these tapes got back to his bunkmate playing his team. And, um, and, and someone said to him, oh, he, he came up and went, oh, Rico's not my friend. And I'm like, why? And he said, well, if Rico really believes what he says on this tape and he hasn't told me about it, which he hasn't, Does he really think I'm his friend? The only way we can love people is to tell them about Jesus. We can love them in other ways as well. But if we withhold who Jesus is, we're withholding the greatest thing. Now, you might not know the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, You might not have read the whole Bible yet. we definitely don't know all the answers. I haven't got all the answers. No one does have all the answers except Jesus. But you know your story, right? You know the way God's worked in your life. You know why it is that you believe this seemingly foolish message. You know the hope the message holds out. You know some of the evidence because you've made a decision. You've decided to trust in Jesus. You've got words that can give eternal life. You know why you turn from serving yourself to serving Jesus. So tell your story. Tell your story. Share the love Jesus has shown us and the way he's impacted you in a personal sense to your friends. Don't be ashamed. One of Satan's most effective lies, because remember that's all he speaks, is this. You don't know enough to speak about Jesus. You're not there yet. Just learn a bit more before you say anything. If you speak, you look like a fool. But you know what? You know your story better than anyone else. 
So tell your story. The message of the cross, says this passage, is God's power for salvation. That message that your story is about, the fact that Jesus took us and ripped us out of darkness and brought us into light, that he offered us forgiveness, that he died in our place, that he rose again, that he would come back to judge the world. That message of the cross, though it seems foolish, Paul says is God's power for salvation. But the world around us, the culture we rub shoulders with, see it as foolish, weak and abrasive. You're saying that I'm not good enough. I'm also saying I'm not good enough. Well, in the Corinthian culture, verse 22, the Jews, they demanded miraculous signs. They're like, if this Jesus is true, we want to see the bling. We want to see the flash. They want to see amazing things, right? Um, it wasn't hard to imagine the Corinthians, the spiritually gifted church, rolling out a plethora of flash and pop. We'll show you miracles. We'll show you healing. We'll show you... They had every gift, right? It was all there. It was like, bang, crackle, pop. It wasn't just rice bubbles. Um, maybe you don't have the ad here. But the Greeks... For them, it was more about wisdom. It was more about fancy logic and argument, philosophical ideas of freedom, freedom to live how you want, to be progressive, to be on the edge of the cutting edge of moral thought. That's what it was. To have speakers whose rhetoric and style would dazzle and wow their listeners, and people are like, that's what I want. This is amazing. This speaker is wow. But compare that to what Paul says. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 of chapter 1. But we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What the world values, God does not. Say again, what the world values, God does not. So Paul in verse 20 rolls out the poster voice for ancient kind of popularity, showing the wisdom and power of God, he kind of rolls out all the people that would have been thinking, where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? You can kind of imagine what it would be like today. You know, if, if Albert Einstein, this guy, right? There you go. Where is he? If he were to stand before God, the epitome of wisdom, right? If, if there's anyone wise, it's him. What do you think God would say? E equals MC squared, Bert. That's pretty good. Or, why didn't you submit to my son who died in your place and offered you forgiveness and a life with me forever? Or the scholar, right? The academic. Richard Dawkins. There's probably better academics, but anyway. Um, Oxford's evolutionary biologist. The man at the most prestigious university. What what would God say to him should he face God? Wow, Richard, some of your atheistic ideas were pretty convincing. Those arguments, almost doubted I existed. (laughs) Or the philosopher of this age. Who's the one who kind of has worked out what 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 we do best or worked out the way that we can kind of get to our deepest needs? Who's marketed our needs most brilliantly? 
Steve Jobs, surely. Right? He's worked out of his eyes and he's sold them so that I'm holding one of his products in my hand right now. Do you know, in one year, Apple sold enough products to have one for every 36 people on the face of the planet. One year. He's the model of hip and cool. He's kind of functional, productive, successful. He's got it all, right? But where is Steve Jobs? And I am this in no disrespect. But they're all dead. Richard Dawkins isn't yet. We can take our brightest and our best. We can take our coolest and our most marketable. The most intelligent and the most powerful on the planet. And none of them can think, reason, build or buy their way out of death. None of them. Yet through the foolishness of a Jew, nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago, God has saved the world. What Paul is saying is, let me, let me use something that's a little bit dodgy to explain it, so then we'll come back. Paul's saying this, God on his dumbest day is still smarter than all the people who've ever lived. God on his weakest day is more powerful than all the armies, navies and air forces, the marines, the terrorists that the world has ever seen combined. Now God doesn't have dumb and weak days. But you get the kind of thing that's going to come up here. He's saying even God's foolishness is an amazing salvation. His judgments are always right. This God has the power to turn a guilty sinner into a forgiven saviour. A billion nuclear bombs couldn't deflect the wrath of God. But a Jew hanging on a cross did. Not only is the message foolish and weak, not only is it foolish and weak to the world around us, Paul says, those who believe it are foolish and weak too. Second point in your outline if you're following. The temptation for us to understand what Jesus has done, who see the cross not as foolish, but for the power that it really is, our temptation is to think that we're somehow better. Because we get it. That we are wiser than the wise of the world. We are smarter than the scholars of this age. Because we get it and we kind of stand there like, nah, nah, I've got it, you don't. Or kind of a condescending look to people who, who... There's an arrogance that can creep in when we think about who we are. But it couldn't be further than the truth. Paul kind of brings, probably in Kiwi style, these Corinthians back down to ground level. Brothers, verse 26. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. To think that we are somehow more superior or worthy because we've been shown God's mercy is actually a denial of God's power. To think that I'm somehow greater, that God chose me because of, well, look at me, is 
to deny the strength of God. Just think of what you were like when God called you to himself, if he has. What would God have rated you? Cleverer than Einstein? As successful as Steve Jobs? (laughs) For me, I can't remember when I came to him, but when I first trusted, I was merely a child. I was weak. I didn't have power or intellect. I probably couldn't even count. I don't know. For the majority of us, we were and are just average. Middle of the road. Mediocre. I mean, has anyone here ever won a Nobel Prize? Just put your hand up. Okay, me either. Um, What about, does anyone hold a world record? Particularly in sports? Um, What about a New Zealand record? Or an Australian record? Some Australians? What about... Anyone? Okay. Um, Does anyone have a city named after them? Building? Library? (laughs) Has anyone had a clothing line or a line of perfume named after them? Maybe you could go start. What about um, release the number one hit song? Top 40? Right. Has anyone ever been asked to advise a president? Okay. How about a Prime Minister? If God's wisdom was the world's wisdom, he would have gone somewhere else than us, wouldn't he? He wouldn't have chosen us. That doesn't mean you can't be a Christian and win a Nobel Prize. doesn't mean you can't be a Christian and have a designer label named after you. But that will not be many of you. Paul says, and it's humbling, we're a bunch of nobodies. We're a bunch of nobodies. God loves to choose nobodies. Because it shows how amazing he is. It points to him. It says, look, I don't need this world's wisdom. I'll bring about my purposes through whomever I please. Verse 30, it's because of him that we are in Christ Jesus. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. That means there's no room in the church for smugness. No room for pride, for one-upmanship, for condescending looks and others who don't get it, for moral outrage at what someone else has or hasn't done. But for the grace of God, we would do the same. I'll say it last week, but I'll say it again. To display superiority in your beliefs and actions over one church, over a believer or over a non-believer, is a denial of the gospel. It's saying, I'm so good because I worked it out. I've got it together. What twisted people we can be. That we take the work of God and claim that it's somehow because of us. Now don't hear me saying we can't disagree with people or point out where we think God's Spirit is showing us in His Word that we differ. We can do that and we should do that. Paul tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? We use God's word to work out how to live. But just don't boast. At least, not in yourself. Paul says if we're to boast, we're to boast in the Lord, in Jesus. Boast in the cross of Christ. The thing that looks foolish to the world. What are you boasting What are you most likely to say at the dinner party? 
when you're hanging out with some friends, oh, tell me a bit about yourself. I immediately go, even when uh, what, people ask me, what job do you do? I immediately go, oh, I'm a pastor. But I used to be. <laughs> right? Why? Because it looks foolish. Why do you give up a job to go and tell people about Jesus? Yeah. Um, now, there are crafty ways to think about how you can kind of say it in a helpful way. But who are you? You know, what do you do with yourself? What do you do on the weekend? What are you tempted to make the main deal? Even here in this church, we get a church that meets in a bar, right? How cool is that? We get to a church that thinks Jesus is the saviour of the universe. We go to a church that believes Jesus died on the cross and rose again and that because of what he has done, he has brought us from death to life. You should come. Come and meet Jesus. Frankly, I don't think we boast enough. I don't think we boast enough in the blessings of the cross. And I think it's because we don't want to look foolish. And that's why I don't do it. Verse 31, Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. But how do you do that? How do you, how do you boast in the Lord? Well, Paul gives an example here. And I want us to see how countercultural it is. How foolish and weak it is. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was among you except Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear, with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul didn't kind of slide into town with smoke machines and sexy slides and a rhetoric that mesmerised the crowds. In fact, they said Paul was pretty pathetic in his speaking. He was a good writer, but the way he spoke was like, he's like a little short man, he's not very good at stuff. That's kind of what happens, right? There's hope for us all, okay? But he came in weakness. He came in fear and trembling. But he came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So often we go, what's this demonstration of the Spirit's power? It's all flash, bang and pop, right? We want to see crazy miracles. We want to see this, this God boom, heal people left, right and centre. People thrown against walls and be like, Jesus is here. Exorcisms everywhere, right? Crazy stuff. Now I'm not saying God can't work that way. But here you see the polar opposite. The demonstration of the Spirit's power is no flash, no bang, no pop, no sparkle, no razzle-dazzle. It's weakness, fear and trembling on our behalf, on Paul's behalf as the preacher from ordinary people about an extraordinary God. And when he speaks this message, people move from death to life. There is the power of the Spirit to bring someone from death, darkness, destruction and hell to everlasting life with the creator of the universe. Forgiveness. No razzle-dazzle, just the truth of the gospel. So much of today's spirituality is more like a magic show, I want to say, than the message of the cross. Don't be deceived by froth and bubble. Sharp and slick and quick preachers. There's no such thing as a great preacher. Just a great God. An extraordinary saviour with an extraordinary message. 
a message that doesn't look all that powerful now, but on that last day when Jesus returns, then you will see the power of our God. On that last day, there will be two lines. One that leads to everlasting life, and one that leads to everlasting death. There will only be two lines. And the only reason you're in the line that leads to everlasting life is that someone told you about Jesus. Someone told you the message of Jesus. That is an incredibly powerful message, isn't it? An incredibly powerful message. That your future, your eternity relies on what Jesus has done and someone telling you that message. And if you're in the other line, the only reason that you are there is that you didn't accept the message of the cross. You didn't let Jesus wipe your sins clean. Friends, we have God's power in our hearts, on our lips. Speak the gospel. Trust the gospel. That's what Paul's saying is the key. That's the thing that needs to captivate us. If you haven't accepted Jesus, and I want to say, don't you think now's the time? Don't you think now would be the time to say, yes, I can't do it. I want his forgiveness. I want what this message offers. It's time to come and experience his forgiveness.